Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the Unauthorized, unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater... With the normal bitcheries and qualms... By watching the video recordings... From of questionable origins... Of various productions. This week... We are talking about the Encore's production of A New Brain, specifically the performance from June 24th, 2016. This one is super easily accessible. You won't need a new brain to find it. Thank you very much. Uh, We mention this because while we review the show itself, we also share thoughts about the specific performance we've seen. The internet is your friend, darling. So, without further ado, the curtain is now rising. Please, Joshua. Joshua. Uh, What? 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 Do you think you could call an ambulance for me? My brain is foggy. Yeah, yeah, not right now. I'm in the middle of a thing. Please enjoy our discussion of the June 24th, 2016 performance Uh, of A New Brain. uh, Bam. Frogs have so much. (laughs) Okay. Oh! Dan, hey, sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, I'm just working on this song right now. Sorry, just it, give me a second. Really? Yeah, it's. Uh, I gotta. I gotta get it in before. Uh, uh, I heard... I'm about to go in for like a like an insanely huge surgery, like one of like the biggest deals of my life. So I'm just gonna jot out a little tune real quick. Give me a sec. Yeah, I think we're good. Hey there, guys. How's it going? <laughs> I, I heard something about frogs. Are you trying to fix the frogs? Because that, that's just unfixable. We just... Uh, yeah, I think fix would be a big ask of that show. S- Sondheim did it. A... We accept it happened. And um, we wish everyone the best with that. But if you're trying to fix the frogs... Mm, I would say Aristophanes did the frogs, but we can split hairs there. <laughs> Unless you're trying to make a new cats called frogs. Oh, God. Do you think Stephen Sondheim's The Frogs was trying to do to Aristophanes' The Frogs what Cats did to T.S. Eliot? Well, it predates Cats by about a decade, so... <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'll give you that. Uh, it would shock me if it was. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Hello, everyone. Hi. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, how have you been? Oh, I've been just, um, dandy. Fine and dandy. And how are you? Happy to hear it. I'm, uh, fine and dandy too. I tried to think of something that would just sound satisfying with that how are you. Just sort of had an ending rhyming couplet, whatever. You don't know. know. I'm not, I'm a poet or something. You don't know fine and dandy? The musical from what? 1932? (laughs) (laughs) You know, surprisingly, Dan, surprisingly, I think it might have left Fine my mind. Dandy and how are you? Sugar candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so have fun with that. Um, <laughs> that was we watched, right? <laughs> oh, oh, see, I was under the impression that this week we were watching a, a new brain, oh. or specifically the... Oh. Uh, Encore's production from the performance that took place on June 24th, 2015. Oh, I, um, 
I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Did you watch Fine and Dandy, Dan? I watched the bootleg of my living room production of Fine and Dandy because it is the only bootleg of that show. <laughs> Um, oh, oh! Really shoddy quality, though. I don't know who the fuck shot it. <laughs> a new brain, William Finn. What did you think? Uh, well, well. First of all, what did you uh, know about this musical before yes, you watched it? Yes, um, I had listened to the original cast recording. Probably mm. um, <coughs> fifteen years ago. Uh, sorry, I said five. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I heard. I think you just got your audio got muddled up a little bit there. It's all good. We can just a little bit. We'll fix it in post. That's a decent. We'll keep coming back to that. Decent bit, Uh, (laughs) because it doesn't get fixed. (laughs) 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 And I had listened to the encore's cast recording uh, the week it came out. Oh, is there a cast recording? Yes, although Dan Fogler is not. In the cast recording, he's replaced by everybody's favorite heterosexual, Christian Brrrl. Oh, is that so? Uh-huh. Was he meant to do the production? No. Um, Dan Fogler was shooting a movie in London when they recorded. Oh, it's probably some tiny indie picture that no one really knows about. Yeah. And they said, we're not waiting for you. We'll get Christian Brrrl. Fantastic That's, noise coming out of your mouth there. That is the official pronunciation of his name. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you find a more simpler way to enunciate it when we get to something rotten in a couple weeks. I won't. Spoiler. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Goodness gracious. Okay, now I'm officially and... dreading this recording. Anyway. <laughs> and I had listened to each of the cast recordings about once. I loved it, and I forgot about it. So it was like revisiting an acquaintance I liked, and getting better acquainted, and becoming friends. Um, What did you know about this show? Um, Actually, before um, I sort of understood the, you know, sort of grander scale of how big bootlegs are, that was one of the firster first er question mark like bootlegs that i found on youtube actually and i think i watched about the first half an hour of it a couple years ago so i actually sort of um i dipped my toes into the water a little bit i gave the show a little uh test run okay so this this specific performance was actually a little bit familiar in my mind all right and now you saw more than the first half hour yes should i have um it's a good idea. Um, okay, hold on. Just give me another 65 minutes. Give me, we'll be right back. Okay. Whew. Great, what did hey. you think? <laughs> wow, that was awesome. Great show. Fantastic. I loved it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, just now getting out of it. I'm about seven seconds uh, fresh from watching it. <laughs> yeah, no, but gen- uh, genu- genuinely though, um, I loved this show. I thought this was fantastic. This was a brilliant show. This one I really loved. Um, mm-hmm. I loved it. I thought the, this, this was a, one of the fewer... I, would you call an encore production a revival? 
Um, yes, it is a sort of revival. It's a limited run revival, and mm. they might not always be full productions. This was billed as a concert production, but this was a full fucking production. Yeah, that was fully staged. There was not a book in sight. Um, that, there was nothing concert about that. Uh, oh, and for, uh, for those who might be a little bit less acquainted, uh, a concert production of a uh, musical typically requires the actors to be carrying uh, books of the uh, script and score uh, with them at all times to sort of uh, glance at and perform as though it were more dedicated to the material itself rather than a full-out staging. Yes, and the Encores series was originated in about um, 1993, 1994, uh, with the intent of giving you lesser performed more forgotten shows and emphasizing the original orchestrations of those shows so encores is some place that might do fine and dandy and how are you um <laughs> uh, is this, this the was first part encores production recovering yes this is the first encores production oh, hey. recovering Look and this comes from their summer off center series so mm. their main encores series focuses on broadway shows the Off-Center series focuses on off-Broadway shows, and A New Brain originally ran off-Broadway in Lincoln Center. Ooh, very nice. So their whole thing was, uh, like, stripped-down productions with original orchestrations? Yes. Mm. And uh, now they're at the point where they're... Recapturing yeah. the original sound of the show, and now... Um, and now we have uh, the uh, very lesser performed uh, Evita with its original orchestrations. Uh, oh, and being next season and is the even lesser performed Into the Woods. Yeah, yeah, we haven't gotten, uh, what was it, two major productions in the past, like two years around oh, America? I in New York, um, it's not like it's shown up for four major revivals in the last decade yep. or two. Yep. yep. So there's always been a question about the Encore's mission. Um, they do have a new artistic director starting who has revised their mission. I do hope they continue to do lesser seen shows. Um, mm -hmm. Part of the origin of this podcast was I went to see Mac and Mabel at Encore's and I... Mm had always hated the song tap your troubles away on the cast recording seeing it in context it's one of the strongest songs in the show and i thought huh. unless you are in new york with a subscription to the encore series there's a large section of musical theater that we can really never know unless we watch the bootlegs uh-huh and so, now we're here and now we are here a new brain, Bill Finn, Jimmy Lapine. I don't think either of them go by those brief names, but... <laughs> nope, neither of them. Not even a little bit. <laughs> I think it is Bill Finn, but not Jimmy Lapine. <laughs> Bill, Bill Finn, yes. I thought you said Billy Finn, and I'm like, I've never heard Billy. Oh, I said Bill, not Billy. Oh, yeah. Bill Finn, that My one boy, is uh, much more colloquially used. <laughs> um... Yeah, so generally, you enjoyed this? I enjoyed this a lot. And you enjoyed it too, yes? Yes, very much so. And I'd like to sort of start off the conversation 
by asking the question that I sort of brought up for the first time last week when we did Heather's, uh, which is, what do you think was the message of the show? What do you think was the moral of the story that the show was trying to get across? You first. <laughs> ah, all right. Um, I think the moral of the story is to focus on the living of life rather than uh, prophesizing about the inevitability of its end. Maybe that's just a moral of the story, but that felt like one of the more prominent ones to me. Yes, um, that is definitely a valid reading of the show. What struck me watching it this time around is the overall theme of art as life and your ability to artistically produce directly reflecting on your life's output. And the end of the show is art takes time. Mm-hmm. So you lean more into the to into the artistic uh, lens of it. Sure, if we're going to use Word. lenses. Huh. Ooh, lens. That's a that's an interesting word. That makes me Ooh. sound like I go to theater school or something. Yeah, and just for those who haven't been to theater school, lens is the way with which you look at a show. Mm-hmm. It's the perspective in which uh, an audience member takes in. Uh, the understanding yes. of the narrative. Yes, and I really saw two themes running throughout the show. The theme of art as life and just an overall theme with time. So Yeah, time was a big one. Let's just start talking about time. The first sound you hear in the show is a metronome. And a metronome keeps time in music so the very beginning we're establishing time as a theme later it's going to become i don't know if that's an ekg machine or a pulse shock but it's going to be the mm -hmm. hospital beep yeah and we're going to get all of these references to time i give you time is one of the songs later on the music still plays on music of course always keeping time there are just time references everywhere. So then to combine time with art as life, uh -huh. art takes time and we have to accept that. Yeah, very well put. I can very much get that. Good, because I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you wouldn't believe it, so did I about uh, the living <laughs> of life. Sure. For me, for me, it just felt like, um, it. you know, it felt like so much of the show was it felt like it was centered a lot around Gordon's lack of faith in his own future, uh, both in his career and with this uh, brain incident, if you will, where everyone around him is telling him that he'll live, and he's the and he's the one saying, uh, "Don't say that. I'm going to die." Uh, and he comes out on the other side of it, living, and he sort of comes away with this message. He's like, "I choose to live." which feels very Angels in America-y. Well, and also, it should be mentioned, this premiered in, I believe, 1998. Oh, yeah. The AIDS pandemic was very much fully in effect in New York. 
and we had been nearing the cocktail, which really stopped the death. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people saw this show, the whole brain issue as being a stand-in for AIDS. But the entire show is a Roman Eclay, um, and Bill Finn really had this brain disease, and that is why he wrote this show. Oh, I didn't know that. actually happened to him he was diagnosed like two or three days after winning the tony for falsettos <laughs> wow mm-hmm. and he made and he told that story in like f- what that would have been five years because fal- uh like five or six years because falsettos was 91 or 92 oh 92 the tony 92. awards were in wow. 92 yeah and so you come up with the way to tell that story in five or six years that's fantastic wow and the story about him writing a song in the hospital the day before his surgery is also true what song was that he wrote a song um so in a new brain he's writing a song for a kid's show it was not a kid's show he was writing a song for the wendy wasserstein play the three sisters rosenzweig the rosenzweig sisters Mm. I should know that name. <laughs> he was he was writing a song for a Wendy Wasserstein play huh. in the hospital right before his surgery. And wow. his mother also absolutely threw out all of his books while he was in the <laughs> hospital. Goodness. And he regularly had conversations with a homeless person. I mean, it... A good so this probably, is just autobiographical. A good seventy percent of the show is autobiographical. You know, I was reading David Sedaris's Calypso for the first time about a week ago. I don't know if you've read David Sedaris. Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. Um, he writes like personal essays about his life, and each are a page or two long, and they combine into an entire book. And I was reading Calypso thinking, why haven't we had a David Sedaris musical? Because he's very humorous. And watching A New Brain, I realized we do have a David Sedaris musical. We have Bill Finn. <laughs> Fair. It's an interesting uh, link to make. Mm-hmm. Well, on to the material. Um... What did you think about uh, the music and lyrics? What did you think about uh, the musicality of the show? Uh, very arresting. You have multiple themes running throughout. A low bass figure runs through all the hospital material. It sounds very New York jazzy and also frantic because the story mm-hmm. itself is frantic. Very true. And what did you think? I think I'm sort of starting to get a handle, I think, on uh, William Finn's style, as it were. I've seen uh, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Uh, I've seen, I know a couple of his songs from Falsettos, and I know generally how the play uh, plays out. And I've now seen A New Brain, and I think I'm sort of getting a hand of... He has this sort of... Um, I almost feel as though he's acting as a bridge between the classic style of Broadway composition with the extremely modern subject matter. He His music seems to have all of this, like, you know, upbeat, very um, traditional 
uh, melodical structured um, music that that is all very like whimsical and very fun while ta- while the song itself the song the material that's being talked about is very very much darker in juxtaposition something like um the the song about uh his father is the one that really comes to mind where it's this like fun big number uh where people are like bouncing around to the beat while you're literally watching uh his father push his mom to the ground something like that that like that like you know the hmm. music juxtaposes the subject matter is what you're saying yeah, while also keeping, while the music also itself keeps to a style that seems very traditional Broadway, if that makes sense. Uh, yes, it does deal in traditional Broadway, but also expands on traditional Broadway. Again, you know, that's not necessarily something you'd hear in traditional 1950s Broadway. This is evolving a lot of people compare Bill Finn to Sondheim. Subject matter-wise, hmm. I think he has nothing to do with Sondheim, but they are somewhat dealing in the same book of compositional techniques. And heading more towards, not atonal, but dissonant music, odd rhythms. This deals with a lot of dissonance, but in a traditional matter. Yeah, yeah, perfectly said. What'd you think of the lyrics? I loved the lyrics. It's, uh, they were fantastically punchy. They they varied from the perfect mix of incredibly comical to incredibly poetic. There's one lyric in particular that I want to put on a pedestal. You know how, um... Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, did the closing rap for one of the Tonys and then Sondheim sent him an email with like one of the rhymes he used and he said brilliant and then Lin-Manuel Miranda framed it. I had not heard that. It said simply, landed it, candidate, you deserve a medal. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, that lyric in this show is, ne- it comes in, throw it out. Never it's the Tata literary schmata. There we go. Yes, that was I one of the most brilliant lyrics I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> we are on the exact same page. I wrote that down. I squealed, just squealed. Not in just, delight. not just a deceptively perfect rhyme, but in Yiddish too. Like it's everything you could ask for. Oh, <laughs> brilliant, lovely. Oh. I have literally watching the show. I was like. Oh, I'm going to pull up the lyrics and save that for later. Specific, I want to save this. <laughs> that entire number, lyrically, is just... Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. The, he, the verbal dexterity that he yes, shows. Yes, exactly. It is like... Uh, it, I, I, if, if we're going to compare Bill Finn to Sondheim, this feels like he's a little priest, you know? Um, in terms of the punnery the back and forth punnery puns just used to be a regular part of musical theater I don't think um, a little priest has jokes for having jokes because we need a moment of levity absolutely need a moment of levity in Sweeney Todd this didn't feel like jokes this felt like this is he was raised in traditional musical theater we make puns we use fun wordplay 
and I'm going to really do that right now. You know? Yeah. Word. Well, yeah, fair enough. This is just like a... But that's exactly what it is. It's more that rooted in traditional musical theater conventions, I suppose. Not 100% dedicated to them, but uh, very much rooted in them and very much uh, revisiting them and touching upon them and using them... Uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, Utilizing them? Ah, the word will come to me. Just uh, you, not not sparingly. Not sparingly. Yes. Using them generously. Yeah, sure, I'll go with that. That's close enough. <laughs> okay. Mm. Um, some people think that Bill Finn is too rhymey-rhymey. I would rather have something be too rhymey-rhymey than a misrhyme. So I, I love Bill Finn lyrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I, with me, my stuff. I think my personal taste is either it's got to like rhyme and rhyme well and be clever with the way it's rhymed, or be deeply poetic and not rhyme it at all. I think those are the two that I'm like okay with. So you're like a new brain or spring awakening, nothing in between. Well, now that you mention it, it's actually more like a, a new brain or Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. <laughs> I was listening back to that and I was like, wow, there's a. Not so much going for rhymes here. We're just telling the story. I I believe in you, Mr. Malloy. Mm-hmm. That sounded a little bit pained. <laughs> it's not pained. I enjoyed Haley's comment. Mm-hmm. You're talking about it a lot, and I support you Sorry. on this journey. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's where it comes down to. It's either got to be, like, really clever rhymes or just straight-up poeticism. Okay. Do you have more um, specific notes about the writing? Not off the top of my head. I I, I know that um, this wasn't a complete, um, you know, like this wasn't a completely sung through show, but uh, it was very sung through for for being not a completely sung through show. I would call it a sung through show. There's about five or ten lines, but that's no. There's there's a there's a few scenes, aren't there? I would think. I I, there's a few. Not that I noticed. Huh. Maybe I walked away from it going, it was, I thought it was about, like, 70% sung. Ooh, much higher than that. Yeah? Maybe I'll give it a... I'll, I'll check it again rewatch. Actually, uh, the, uh, the rewatchability is actually something I want to go into later on. Oh, I am ready to rewatch it now. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, just to see what I make of it a second time. I think... I, I don't know what it is. I think this is one of the shows that I have where... I don't want to rewatch it because the experience of getting the story for the first time is so pristine. Uh, I don't think I would benefit from a second watch. I think watching it one time, it was magnificent. And I think that's all I want to do because I want to have that memory of like how the story played out, at least for another few years. I think it's well built enough that you could learn more upon a rewatch than you noticed the first time. Do you think so? Yeah. Maybe that's so. Maybe I'll give it one more rewatch. Um, the first note that I have, there's the I'd Rather Be Sailing song. Such a gorgeous song. And it sounds like a love song. Mm. But what it's hit not really. me what hit me this time, and you know, you hear it out of context, you think, what a gorgeous love song. You see it in context and you go, no, it's a song of abandonment. Yeah, the fuck? I'd, ra- <laughs> I'd rather be sailing. <laughs> Sex is good, but I'd rather be sailing. 
and then that come home like to you. The ultimate, it's, that's like the ultimate for the boys song. You know, it's like, uh, it, that feels like something you'd, you'd, uh, that you would pick up on a t-shirt in a red state, you know, like, uh, sex <laughs> is good. Food is good, but I'd rather be sailing. Hell yeah, boys. Well, which brings up an interesting point. How much of the show is really happening and how much of the show is just Gordon's experience yeah. of what he thinks is happening? Yeah. When he's, uh, like, performing Mr. Bungie's song for him um, and Mr. Bungie, like, giving him notes, I almost didn't know if that was... if he was really getting notes from Mr. Bungie at all either. Well, that's uh, because an interesting the way that... point. I mean, would you have... A kids show performer come visit you in the hospital to hear a song hours before you have a surgery? I almost got the impression that if it were happening, it didn't seem like they were in the same room. It felt as though maybe, like, uh, if it were happening in real life, it would have been over the phone or something of that. Um, mm, that's a good point. You know? And maybe that's also, how you would stage it if you were going to direct the show. So it really did strike me that um, sailing you know and then come home to you i'd rather be sailing i don't want to be around you it didn't seem like it seemed like this was happening in gordon's head there were other moments that again seemed like they were happening in gordon's head so you're dealing with kind of an unreliable narrator heading into this oh and you know how much i love those Mm. oh well what do you make of the homeless person then you know, I don't have a goddamn clue. Actually, now that you have me thinking about it, I went into this recording not 100% sure what the hell they were doing in this show. Mm-hmm. A lot I'm of Bill Finn shows if... are like that. He... I'm wondering if that last moment with the books was the only time the character was really there. Which is interesting. I did ask myself, why is change where it is because it does seem random we've been in the hospital all day we go right back to being in the hospital and then we have this um woman out on the street and really she's acting as a kind of omniscient being and she's kind of saying gordon needs to change he's in the hospital he's about to have a surgery he's writing this song that he's not going to find very fulfilling in mm-hmm. a kind of you need to embrace life that is the change that song is really talking about and then later on the whole scene with the books the line is he he says to her you have found my books you have found my history and then she won't give him his books huh. so my thoughts about that line is it saying that we are the art that we consume is he so wrapped up in his past art that he no longer can create anew? Does he need to move on? And is she taking those books away, telling him he has to move on? I want to know how to get through, through to something new. And that's our Mandy reference. Thank you all. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> you have found my books. You have found my history. And Mm -hmm. she won't give him the books. So is she, to put it in a shorthand that you would embrace, is she a more active Che? Ooh. You're speaking my language. (laughs) She more... Huh. But... But would you say she goes as far as to, like, 
dismantle that throughout the show, or is it more like a push in the direction? I don't know. I find it odd. She's offered money like three times and she turns it down. True. Or she's not satisfied with it. Uh huh. Even when she does accept money, she's like, I didn't want this. She huh. really is moving the story, affecting the story, and seems to be some kind of magical being. I always like that stereotypes and the things where it's like a. I, is, it, is it just me or is that something that appears in the, like every now and then? Like it's not a very rarely used device where you have the person who's down on their luck act as the omnipotent being. It's used enough to almost be a stereotype. Mm, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure if I was on the money with that, but I had that feeling. But it is well used here, I think. Absolutely, yeah. That's not even a question. And she's constantly commenting on the action. She's changing the action. She's changing the direction of the show, really. Because True. as odd as I found change when it came up, and it is a great song and it is performed expertly here. Um, oh, yes. Remarkably. It really does recenter what needs to happen in this show because up until that point we're kind of running rudderless <laughs> nice sailing reference we're running rudderless and she comes in saying he has to change and all of the sudden the show is given a goal beyond he's having a brain surgery he has to survive the brain surgery it's not just that he needs a new brain he needs a new outlook on life hmm he needs to change. Mm-hmm. And again, the whole art as proof of living. In the song right before change, he said, um, you know, if I could finish a song or five, I'd be brain dead as alive. Are we alive if we are not creating artistic output? Man. That is the question that is being asked. And also, what song is he writing? He's writing songs for Mr. Bungie, which he does not seem fulfilled at all by so he could write five songs he would see proof that he was alive but he would be brain dead he thinks he's gonna end up brain dead anyway yeah so what values do you put on your life really going forward is the main crux of the show wow yeah wow well said um just another lyric that i loved um from and they're off which mm -hmm. terrific song um yeah wow he's talking about his parents mm -hmm. all they did was fight plus they discussed the weather <laughs> it just so perfectly encapsulates again what is it um 10 words and in those 10 words you get that they were fighting so often it was as normal discussion as the weather it completely gives you an exact context for that relationship in as much economy as possible. Or as Sondheim would put it, less is more. Mmm. One of the golden rules. That is great lyric writing. Yeah. You, you, you give the audience enough information to come up with all of that uh, working themselves and feel so clever for figuring it out on their own. Yes, to keep the audience mentally engaged. You don't give them everything, but you give them enough that they can fill in their own images. They can yeah. create the complete picture. 
And that's also true for actors. You want to give actors tools to create a full picture, but you don't want to give them absolutely everything because there's no room for discovery at that point. Right. And discovery is the most beautiful part of theater. Mm-hmm. What else, what else struck you about the writing? I, it, it seemed to have this really, this plain eloquence about it. If that makes sense. It wasn't particularly intellectually verbose, but it still grasped on like a huge vocabulary and used a lot of really interesting, like uh, out of the box slang terms and weird adjectives and, you know, verbs as placeholders for other verbs that are brilliant in their own right and still so easily digestible for any audience. Which I think is fantastic. When you when you have writing that can be so brilliant that it appeals to both sides of your brain like that, it's it's all you can ask for. Appeals to both sides of your new brain? Uh, new brain. Well said. Yeah. I jumped on you a little bit on that one. That, that's because that's that's only because it was insanely predictable. No other reason. <laughs> um yeah, you're saying it's verbally dense. Yeah. But not in a way that's like that would make um an audience go, oh, they're trying too hard to be smart. I didn't come here to, for Moliere. Uh, uh. You know, it's still, like, fantastic, fantastically readable. I wouldn't say that Bill Finn's lyrics are effortless, but I am yeah, always but... comforted by his lyrics. You can tell there's a lot of work that goes into them, but you know you're in good hands. Yeah, true. I meant more as in, like, the... um. Like, you can see he's, like, like it's very clear he's trying to be clever, but he's not doing it in a way that, like, goes, uh, that, that would, like, turn off an audience with, uh, trying too hard to be clever, yeah. per se. He is trying hard to be clever, but it comes naturally to him, so it feels authentic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm trying to get at, yeah. Any other yeah. themes you want to point out? I think that's all that I have. I was mm. just inspired. Mm, yeah. That's just it's it, it, that's just good ass writing. And that oh, I do have one last thing to say. So the show started as a song cycle. Is that so? And a, a lot of a lot of uh, Bill Finn's work tends to, no? Uh, that's the point I was about to make. A lot of Bill Finn's work tends to seem like reviews. There are multiple styles that he works in, but he's very deft at working in those styles, and his shows do seem random, but I think this is very thought through and very well planned. Mm-hmm. I almost, I, I don't think I would have been able to tell that, that that this was a song cycle if you told me. Something like uh, Falsettos, I might have even had more of a chance at, at uh, picking that up uh, what's interesting uh, with, with falsettos is that um act one seems like to me act one seems like a review act two seems like a plotted event so march of the falsettos feels like a review falsetto land feels like plotted story and you really get more of the review level here but it is all in a way of telling the overall story, and it is not necessarily the most linear show, which I find very mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I don't think musicals need to be linear all the time. Yeah. You look at some of the nonlinear musicals, 
you know, you have company, you have a new brain, you have a strange loop, you have cats. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, they're not all winners, but it's a pretty <laughs> damn good group. Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good alumni. Some good it's a good class to be in. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's move on to the actual production. This mm. was in no way a concert production. This was a full production. What did yeah. you make of it? I was I started asking myself the question, could this have transferred? I was wondering like like I was I was really sitting down and watching it, wondering like uh trying to like really pick it apart and go, do I think that this could stand on its own as like a cohesive and a definitive production of the show? And in terms of can this stand as a definitive major production of the show i think yes if i think about uh do i think this should be like the broadway revival of or or i guess the original broadway production of a new brain i would be resigned to say no i think mostly because it didn't feel as though it were um i guess it it, it didn't go out of its way to feel as though ooh, major production of this bill finn musical which good it, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm happy that it didn't go any further or any smaller than it went. I think it was exactly the way it should. And honestly, I think I could probably see this production last having a, another good life as an off-Broadway revival. Well, I don't... I, I think this could have transferred to Broadway in the right house. There was no talk of transfer because of Jonathan Groff's schedule. Right, of course. Um, there was no talk He's, at all. I, I believe he was doing some uh, tiny little project right afterward, or something like that. Looking. Um, was this when he was doing looking? Twenty fifth summer of twenty fifteen. Yes, I want to believe as much. Yeah, summer of twenty fifteen. I can't think of any other big show that would have come out around that time. No. Um, summer of twenty fifteen. The visit was on Broadway. Um, oh right, yes, of course. The twenty sixteen Tony Awards, the year of the visit. No, that was the tw- uh, 2015 Tony Awards were the visit. And Fun Home had just oh, won. Oh, was it really? Let's see. What was after that? The Color Purple about. Revival? Anyway. Yes, that that was it. That was it. Okay. Jonathan Groff was slated to be in the Color Purple Revival. He That's played Sophia. Mm. All his yeah. life he had to fight. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious, Great Falls of Fire. Yeah, Jonathan Groff went straight from this onto Hamilton. So clearly his schedule oh. was... Uh... Oh. Wait, oh, were you actually not? I w- that was totally a bit on my part. Uh, um, I didn't 100% know that. <laughs> Dude, it was summer of 2015. Hamilton premiered like months later. Uh, Hamilton just appeared. It's not associated with a year for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Just it appeared was, it, out it, it, of the ether. He he took over for uh, Brian Darcy James in transferring from Off Broadway to Broadway. Yeah, th- that's my also thought. If it was 2015, I would think Brian Darcy James. I, I mean, if you associate 2015 with the Off Broadway production, sure. But uh, Hamilton premiered in um, on Broadway. Well, it was July 13th. So yeah, like a month afterward. So yeah, scheduling was certainly an issue. Um, absent scheduling issues, I think this could have run on Broadway. Um, it would need to be in one of these smaller houses. I don't see how you would put a bigger production onto this show. Yeah, I agree with that. 
I agree. I think, sorry, what I, I think maybe, maybe what I meant to say was, I don't think this was a big enough production to qualify as a Broadway show. I think just in general, I, I don't I don't mean to say so much that a, a, a Broadway production of this show, just a Broadway production in general. But I think in an off-Broadway house that this would do wonders. That is presuming that commercial off-Broadway exists right now, which mm. we can heavily debate. True. What what house could you see this playing? Um, the Helen Hayes, the Booth. The smaller theaters that are on Broadway. Booth, maybe, yeah. I could see this running at the um, American Airlines Theater. Uh, that's where Violet transferred. That also was part of the Encores Off Center. Season. Oh, was that an Encores production? Yes, and it transferred to the roundabout American Airlines Theater, because if you're an airline, you can just buy a theater name. Or in uh, Toronto, if you are a camera company, uh, a, a um, insurance car company, or a television company, then you can get You know, theater. you mentioned the Winter Garden, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that was... Wasn't that renamed for a little while? The Cadillac Winter Garden. <laughs> the Cadillac Winter Garden. Hooey! Mm-hmm. What a yep. name. Wasn't that, like, just for Mamma Mia or something? It was not specifically for Mamma Mia. They just Not, like, for Mamma Mia, but, like, only throughout the run of Mamma Mia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They bought the license. It expired before Mamma Mia left that theater. <laughs> All right. Sure. Why not? Okay. I just <laughs> can't wait for the jack-in-the-box circle in the square. Oh, God. What a cursed, cursed sentence. <laughs> a plethora of words. <laughs> All right, so generally about the production itself, the individual elements, uh, anything that you really particularly enjoyed? The music direction. Um, the music mm-hmm. direction on this production was pretty immaculate. When the group sang chorally, they had great dynamics, a great blend. You got the feeling that the actors inherently knew the music. You know, you go to some musicals, it happens that actors will shortchange, if you know the score, actors will shortchange a note here or there, or they'll come in in the middle of the bar Especially with concert productions, where all that is understood to be more lax. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actors, you could feel, completely knew this score. Although, I should mention, one of the revisions that they did, they cut the joyful chorus section of heart and music. Oh. What did that entail? Uh, anything? It, it anything entailed new? vocal arrangements by Jason Robert Brown, because uh, he did the vocal arrangements and it went on for another minute or so and kind of got gospel-y a little bit hmm alright overall I guess not missing a whole lot then um it's a favorite part of the old recording so oh. It, oh. it was missed especially when the production was so well musically directed yeah true I'll give you that what did you think of the anything else about the production? I thought it did what encores tries to do best, and it 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 didn't 
the the lack of I guess showiness from the production really highlighted the material and I think what was best about the production was all around the direction the actors dynamics with each other were fluent there were a couple performances that seemed to be directed magnificently uh I loved these subtle little uh recurring jokes that uh popped in every now and then um Josh Lamon's nurse uh, I thought was directed brilliantly especially in his uh in his number uh, you boys are going to get me in such trouble I thought well, that was directed just brilliantly yeah I, I just a fantastic direction that really really went on to highlight the brilliance of the performers the excellent in their uh, relation the excellence in their relationships with each other and doing what a quote-unquote concert production of a show should do best which is really just showcase the material yes it definitely showcases the material you keep mentioning you're using terminology as if there is a bigger production available or feasible i don't know what would no, be no, a no, bigger I don't... production <laughs> i don't think so either i think i'm more speaking of generally as productions go okay not productions yeah. of uh it was like do you expect a whole brain that people start running around like a maze no, no, my Huge God, brain not at set all. piece, some kind of big thing that falls out of the sky. No, just I, I'm not not to say as though that uh, oh, when you do this show, you gotta do it big or you go home. But just that this felt like a show with de-emphasized production value, not a lack of production value, but de-emphasized production value, as if the show, as if it were telling you the material is what we're here for. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is something what- I admired. What struck me is, you know, hospitals are very static places. Someone's in a hospital bed, you walk in, you sit down. It's just physically a very static situation. You did not feel that with the production. They really were able to move people around in an interesting way and give you some um, visual variety. Yeah. You know what's also something I just... Sorry, I'm going to go back to the material a little bit and tell me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong. Something that I also like about this show is that it's a story that features a central gay romance and isn't about the gay experience per se. Yeah, the main character just happened to be gay rather than the entire show is about gayness. And it, and, and, and not in a way either that made it feel as though, like, uh, so they're just, like trying to ignore it per se it didn't feel like they were like you know trying to shy away or trying to be coy or uncanny or even silent about it but like it wasn't about the experience of being gay it wasn't a relationship that focused on what it's like to have a gay relationship which uh, a lot of material with gay relationships focuses on Mm-hmm. i would agree yeah that was something that's uh that was on my mind as well yeah that was one thing i wanted to throw in uh, anything else you have to say about the production? No, I think I got all of it out. Okay. How about you? I'm good. Okay, brilliant. So let's work our way through this uh, cast list. Do you want to talk about uh, Lisa, the homeless lady? Sure. So Lisa, the homeless lady, was played by Remo Webb. Mm. And 
fantastic vocals. Mm-hmm. Fantastic vocals. Um, very impressive. She's very much a presence on stage, and she gets the character to work and make sense, which it is not an easy character to work on paper. Mm-hmm. Very true. I thought I agree with you there pretty much one-to-one. Excellent vocal skill and brought a sort of, like, nice warmth to the character as well. Yes. Fan of Rayma. So next we have... Um, Dan Fogler as Mr. Bungie, the only Tony winner in the cast. And Tony winner for a William Finn uh, production as well for uh, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Yep. Uh, he's a very unique person, unique vocal sound, and I think he's perfectly cast as Mr. Bungie. Yeah, he was a, a whole uh, ray of joy. And the interesting shading is you don't know if he's just being an asshole or if he's tired. True. Because I, cause you, 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 I think the, the real moment you start to see, like, that that side of, like, humanity in him is um, in the... Uh, when that he's is, singing That uh, is something song. huge that we did not cover on writing, and I can't believe that we didn't. Um mm. Why do you think Mr. Bungie brought Gordon out of the coma? Of all of the characters in the show, there's, why there's Mr. a part Bungie? of me, there's a part of me that wants to say, that wants to go to spite, and that Gordon's uh, just that's where despisal. I go to. Yeah, just Gordon's despisal of Mr. Bungie and the insistence that Mr. Bungie make him fail in everything he do. He almost wants to like shove it in his face, going no. Take this. I'll be fucking awesome. Take that, Mr. Bungie. And it's also a very inspiring, upbeat, say yes song. Yeah. Say yes to life. Don't give in. Yeah. It's, it's, Uh, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say about that? I'd like to actually touch on that a little bit more. It just seemed very odd. The song itself is really a rabble-rouser and uplifting, and you would think, yeah, that is a song that wakes me out of a coma, but it is sung by the least likely character to wake him out of a coma. Um, Again, I went to a place of spite, but if it is not spite, what is it? Hmm. Is it he is seeing life through a new way? Uh, he's viewing life through a new lens, and he wants to see if he can make his survival job with Mr. Bungie artistic. If we are really looking at the oh. show as art is life. I like that. It, it is one of the questions that you would really go through with a director creating when you are rehearsing the production why mr bungie why does mr bungie bring him out of the coma there's probably many other answers to that question do you have any other not really i'm interested i I like hearing your i like hearing your postulations on it though It, it is very that's who brings him out it's a little disorienting but it ultimately makes sense. There's a lot of moments in this show that seem disorienting, but upon further reflection, 
makes sense, which is also why I think this is rewatchable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You've convinced me. I'll give it another shot. Okay. And let's um, move on. Yes. Who's the next character? Uh, the next character is Aaron Lazar. Mm-hmm. Lazar, Lazar, Laser Wolf, um, as Roger. It, th- this is one of the performers who was also previously familiar to me in my uh, lame is nerddom as originating Angeras in the first Broadway revival. Uh, okay, so the first question is, um, what other lame is people would you cast as Roger? Go ahead, I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> You know, that's actually just pretty, like, I feel like you could p- pretty much cast any pretty boy with charm in this role, but I don't think a lot of them would really bring that mixture of of warmth and genuineness and grounding that uh, Aaron brings. Okay. Well, you missed the most obvious answer. Mm. The most obvious answer is obviously Ricky Martin. No, can no, no. We, sorry, sorry, sorry. Leave... Uh, Nick Jonas. Can, can we please leave the both of them just out of musical theater? Please, can we put, just exclude those two? They were in Les Mis. Your favorite show cast them. You own this. I'm aware. I'm aware. I don't condone Your all second the favorite show is a favorite show. That's also a Ricky Martin joint. You own this. Oh, God. Oh, oh, I am dreading the upcoming Nick Jonas revival. Nick, of Nick Jonas of Haley's Comet. But who is this Santa Evita? Oh, God. I am... Oh, God. Let's stop putting Nick Jonas in musicals, please. Him in his invisible box that he must hold or else he'll die. Beauty and the Beast. He was in Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. (sighs) He... Okay. Okay. He was good in Beauty and the Beast and Les Miserables the first times around. He's good as Chip. He's good as Gavroche. Line in the sand drawn. Drawn. We don't need him in the uh, in the How to Succeed revival. Oh. That's for sure. Oh, so you're just saying that you don't care what child actor is there? You don't put any um, value on child actor work because they can grow up to be not very talented. So Aaron Lazar is in that this what you were I saying? Just brought a brought a real genuineness to this character. Mm-hmm. I think he, he was really grounded. We're going to need a clear cut on that. So you're going to say, you're going to have to admit, you just said that child actors are trash. (laughs) Don't take my words out of context, damn it. But those are the words that you said that you used. You said, I think child actors are complete trash. I I implore you. And you know of which you speak. I refuse to acknowledge Nick Jonas in his uh, older than teenage self as anything related to a child actor. AKA I think those are two separate are entities. Are you telling me that Patti Lapone was not an actor as a child? She wasn't. She was on a dance team as a child. But she was still a child performer, no? Do would you, are you calling Patti Lapone trash? Say it louder for the podcast. I didn't say it. You said it. I didn't say what? You were the one that said that child actors were trash with your assumptions about Nick Jonas. Who well, is you're you're the one implying gentleman. that if I, you're the one implying that if child actors are trash, then all child performers must be trash. Therein, uh, Patty Lapone must have been trash. 
Is that what you're saying to Patty Lapone? She listens to everything you know. She sees you when you're sleeping. She knows when you're awake. She knows when you're belting. So belt good so for belt goodness, goodness sake. So belt for goodness sake. Yeah. <laughs> um, Aaron, do you like him? We never got a clean cut on what you said about his performance. I thought he was fantastic. I thought it's a character who on paper can be a little bit jerky, a little bit plain, can sort of be... It, it, it feels like he could very easily be the sort of like Ken doll of a boyfriend. Um, and Aaron Lazar injects a whole bunch of warmth and kindness and uh, just grounding. He, ma- he makes it really, really grounded. I think that's attributed both to Aaron as a performer and to Lapine as a director. I think he gave a great performance, and here is my serious question. Yeah. Did you buy that he was gay? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I did. Well, I mean, I I, I think it, I don't know. They um, If anything, I actually maybe a little bit more bought that Roger was gay than Gordon would have been gay. I don't know what, it, I, don't, I can't put my finger on it exactly, but... I don't know. I didn't see very much of the, uh, I guess, more stereotypically, I guess, effeminate portrayals of him. But oh, I still completely believe that this could totally be a man that was attracted to men. It's not about being effeminate. It's just, I don't know. I didn't get the innate sense that he was gay. I don't know. Not, I mean, not, to, uh, say, not to say that there's um, only one type of gay guy. There's of course. not. There's a million different types. I, I just there's something about the performance that seemed put on rather than authentic. And I think it was a great performance. I don't think it's anything that he did wrong. But that therein lies the issues when you try to cast people of certain uh, identifiers that they don't personally identify with. You know, and that's something that I believe casting should strive a little bit harder to realize well and especially with james lapine directing he's heterosexual um he goes on to cast christian in falsettos um and i know you have thoughts about that I, i have thoughts about that um it was another thing where i don't 100% 100% I don't know if I, it's specifically Aaron Laser Lazar Laser Wolf <laughs> I think we should before we record these things I think we should yeah. probably listen to pronunciations of the name probably um I don't think it's anything that Aaron did wrong I don't think that he's out of bounds playing this role at all I didn't totally buy them as a couple and I don't know where to put the blame, but I like Jonathan Groff more. I don't know. I would honestly be easier to put it on Jonathan Groff than Aaron. I don't know. It was the way that Aaron wrapped his arms around Jonathan. That was that sort of like... Yeah, but that the thing that me. is blocking it for me, the way he put his hands on his hips during I'd Rather Be Sailing, this is very homophobic, like, certain behavior speak, but there's just... <laughs> And the way he put his hands on his hips during I'd Rather Be Sailing, I was like, that is, um, he doesn't feel 100% at home with his body, which I do think gay people have to have a certain mm. understanding of that to come to terms with just sexuality in general. And it was just right, a little enough. off-putting. Okay, fair enough. I think he gave a good performance, um... 
very vocally secure. I didn't 100% buy him and Jonathan Groff as a couple. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that. Definitely. All right. Moving on. Next, we have Anna Gasteyer as Mm. Mimi, the mother. I adore Anna Gasteyer. I also adore Anna Gasteyer. I... I knew her as a comedian much, much, much before I knew her as a Broadway actress. And I think this was the first time I've seen her in a theatrical performance. And God, what a what an immaculate stage presence she has. She is totally underutilized in the world of musical theater. Sinfully. And painfully underused. And this proves how good she is she walks on stage and you immediately go that's star quality that right there yeah yep she's like oh she's about to eat this material up and then just her voice is it's again a very clear belt Uh uh-huh and it's it's it's, feels it's, it's effortless she feels at home doing musical theater very much so you don't see her like uh you don't see the uh the cogs in the machine you don't see her like working it like you don't see like the effort it just mm-hmm. comes across and you're so in in trapped in the performance of it that you don't see the yeah you don't see so, the mechanics of it which is which is excellent to see in a broadway performer and so immensely talented yeah fantastically like, i would love to see so much more stuff with anna gastire well and speaking of a broadway transfer if this transferred to broadway she would be in serious tone and contention I would hmm, think. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely could see. Yeah. Definitely a nomination. Definitely. She just, uh, she has the song we both love about throwing out books. What is the song? Title? Uh-huh. Uh, um, throw it out. <laughs> throw it out. Throw it out. She has throw it out, which is a very punny song. And she doesn't make too much out of the fact that it's jokes. She just, here are the jokes. I know you're going to laugh, and I'm going to let you laugh, and I am presenting this confidently. She's not overplaying the humor, but it is 100% there. That takes a skilled comedian to be able to do that. She is a skilled comedian. She's absolutely Very. heartbreaking, and something like The Music Still Plays On, which mm-hmm. is such a gorgeous song. She's so heartbreaking there, and very vocally versatile. She just feels at home. This is what she should be doing with her life. Musical theater. Now, why haven't we found a proper vehicle for her? I'm not counting, like, third replacement in Wicked as being a proper vehicle. Someone write a show for her. Please, for the love of God. Uh, Question for you. Mm -hmm. Dreamcast Mimi Schwinn. Who? Hmm. You know, when you ask um, Dreamcast... The first name I would consider is always. <laughs> I should, but she, she, I couldn't be Mimi Schwinn because, you know, I had brain encephalitis, and I had to go get a new brain too. <laughs> so I'm really good. The bad trait. Isn't Willow this like the third time you've mentioned that specific fact on this podcast? I had brain encephalitis. They said I would never walk or talk again, and I should. Jiminy Christmas. So I sat sat in my hospital bed and I slowly taught myself. 
my God, she... what's happening now? And I gave it jazz. There, she would be all, all right. of the characters in the prom. When we get to the prom, we will talk about how <laughs> they, they, you know, we can make a Spitterman movie and we can do all of this lovely CGI work. We can't get Liza in the prom, even if she doesn't want to get out of the chair at the beginning of the day. You can't CGI some legs onto Liza and cast a proper person in that role. It... <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so um, you got your Liza Minnelli mention. Great. Moving uh, on. Dreamcast. Yeah, see, <laughs> Dreamcast. <laughs> um, hmm. It's an interesting question. It would need to be someone Jewish. Mm-hmm. Just because I do think Jewish identity is a theme of the show, not a very prevalent theme, but... Yeah, no, like, that goes without saying. That, 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 like, literally in my mind, like... I, like, before I asked the question, I was thinking, like, overbearing Jewish mother. Who who fits mm-hmm. that role? And so often we just see Patti Lapone or Anne Bancroft thrown in that role. And they give great performances, but I don't know if they're perfect for this. Mm. Um, God, give me a second to think. Can I, can I throw a suggestion out there? Uh-huh. How fucking bonkers would it be to get Barbara Streisand in this show? How uh, absolutely you know, fucking nuts. That there it is. Right there. Because uh, you can hear her you can hear her doing the music still plays on. Mhm. And actually when she was doing that third Broadway album, that was a song I hoped she would record, but Oh yeah. She didn't because it was a duets album and she didn't need to do a duets album of Broadway songs. We wanted her just doing more solo songs. The best tracks on that third Broadway album are her solo bonus tracks. <laughs> I, I I really want to hear her sing Mother's Gonna Make Things Fine. I really want to hear that. Well, anyway, that's all <laughs> I really wanted to, to, to postulate upon. You found it. It's Barbara. Yeah, Barbara. All right, and so that brings us to Gordon Michael Schwinn, played by Jonathan Groff. Uh, You take it first. He has grown so much as a performer. You think Mm. of Spring Awakening when people of my generation all had their sexual awakenings, specifically to his performance. Or you could argue there's a divide whether it was Melky or, or... the suicide kid i can't remember his name john gallagher jr that's the actor's name whether it was jonathan groff or john gallagher jr that led to your spring awakening um (laughs) for me it was jonathan groff um but he has grown so much as a performer he's so much vocal more vocally secure he's just such a likable person on stage he's someone you want to spend time with which isn't exactly how the character of Gordon is written, but the behaviors are still there that he can be unlikable. Mm-hmm. But it, it, Jonathan Groff just has a warm personality. Yeah. He invites you to the party, for lack of better phrasing. What do you think of him? Typically, uh, before this, from all the material I'd taken in, I, I was sort of under the impression that he sort of played 
most of his characters the same way, and that he sort of just played them like very naturalistic and very like sort of understated regular old guy like you know that kind of thing that's how i interpreted and i thought this uh this was something that seemed uh out of that line uh i think it was certainly rooted in a lot of naturalism and i think it was a uh, there was there were a lot that that he he brought a really like a uh, uh any old human guy off the street sort of not well not any old but i mean like 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 uh like you're watching like a dude in real life kind of performance. Mm-hmm. I thought he brought a little bit of that, but he still like managed to bring in enough like real character that you start not seeing Jonathan Groff the performer and you start mm-hmm. seeing uh, Gordon. And I thought that was that was something that I really liked about his uh, performance. I was going to say I, I loved his comedic timing. Uh, I thought he sang the score brilliantly. Uh, he seemed very genuinely connected to all the people in the story. Yeah, very much. Well, very much enjoyed it. There are multiple shadings he brings here. He gets vindictive in certain moments, and it's a little scary. You can kind of see the monster come out just a little bit, which was an interesting shading to the character. Yeah. And then he just sold. You know, anytime there's, anytime any one of us has any kind of medical issue it really brings all of the insecurities to the surface he sold that yeah very very great performance by him i liked his hair a lot less after the head bandage came off at the end don't you think you're asking a bit much of him he's just undergone serious surgery yeah but it's jonathan groff and he had a very nice haircut at the start of the show I see where our I see where our uh, sp- specific interests lie. <laughs> <laughs> He's very vocally secure. He's more vocally secure than I have ever heard him sing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely something I I picked up on as well. It's just nice to see him grow into his own as a musical theater performer. All right, and I suppose that leaves us to talk about the uh, video itself. I actually think this is one of the best bootlegs I've ever seen. Um, Me too. The um, filmmaker does applaud and puts the camera down to applaud, but they are so fast at refocusing that you really miss nothing. You don't miss it. From from the top of the show, you get the close-up on the spotlight. Normally with these things, it takes a while for them to, first of all, settle in enough to get the camera on and generally on the stage then they need to get focused to the lighting and then they need to zoom into the people and by that point you're maybe about like a minute or two in uh with this you you don't miss a beat and that was fantastic i like from the beginning i was comforted in knowing that oh this is going to be well done this is going to be a very well recorded thing and sure enough it was there wasn't a there aside from maybe the odd two seconds it took from to get from one point of action to another, you didn't get the feeling you were missing a, a thing of staging. There was no spotlight washout. I could not believe it. There really was yeah. no spotlight washout the entire time, which is typical of bootlegs. Um, when you have a spotlight on someone, uh, when you capture that on camera and you don't have the lighting at all adjusted for the camera... Uh, the performers get washed out. That did not happen here, really, at all. Fantastic. Fantastic stuff. 
And there was like, you could even see Jonathan Groff spitting in a couple moments because he's a very notorious spitter. You could uh-huh. definitely see how wet his lips were. And you could see a couple of pieces of spit fly out of him. A lot of people ether. talked. It, COVID nightmare. I mean, there is no way to COVID secure a theater from yeah. Jonathan Groff. We're just going to have to vaccinate everyone in the building. I think we should put uh, Jonathan Groff and Ben Platt into a little box until the pandemic's over. I no 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 I do not accept them as a couple. Not as a couple, just in a box. Yeah, but if you put them in a box for who God knows how long, eventually something's going to develop, and they do not work together. Get them out of the uh, same box. They 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 both have partners. I'm sure they could stay faithful for a couple days. <laughs> yeah, a couple days back in what last March, and we're still here. No, get them out of the same <laughs> box. <laughs> But yeah, generally, I don't really have any notes about this video. It's just fluent. It's it's one again one of the most perfect. Um, uh, this is as close to a reference quality bootleg as you are going to get. Yes, I think that's brilliantly said. I I I'll just write and say it. I think I'd grade this an A. I would also give this an A. Fantastic. Yeah, felt, and I would uh, give the nice show to- an A. Oh, of course. Yes, I would also give the show a very solid A. The show and the recording altogether, you feel as though you are probably getting the second most ultimate experience of the show, second only to being in the audience in the audience's seat itself. Well, a lot of people liked the original cast, and we should acknowledge that that was very special for some people. And of some of the people did not like the revisions they did for encores. Yeah, I guess that I guess that makes sense. I, I I'll I'll rescind my statement and say the production. Well done all around, and mm-hmm. just the show itself is very inspiring, and very unique. You know, we throw words like unique around. This actually feels like it earns the moniker unique. Unique New York production. A, a unique New York production. So. Next week, we are going to be taking you uh, on one of the most... A, a, a production of a show, a First National Tour production, starring one of the world's most beloved and easy-to-work-with stage actresses in the world, Faye Dunaway, uh, in the First National Tour production of the Terrence McNally play Masterclass. Uh, no! <laughs> flat! Sopranos! <laughs> I work and I work till I'm half dead, and what do I get? A masterclass performer who cares as much as beautiful Puccini music as they care about me. What are flat notes doing in your Puccini aria? Answer me! (laughs) I need to know how long you were sitting on that. I just came up with that. I mean, I have the whole wire hangers monologue memorized. And I, oh, if you check God. me, I probably did pitch match Faye Dunaway perfectly there. Um, I will <laughs> I will have to take you up on that next week. Um, uh, but we, Faye Dunaway is Maria Callas. It's a gay fantasia. <laughs> so this is, any, if anything, is more of a you choice than anything. I, I'm experiencing it as a gay fantasia. I said, let's do a play. You were like... Oh, I've wanted to watch Masterclass. Let's do that. 
and then you coaxed me into uh, specifically going with the Faye Dunaway performance because honestly i think that'll lead to the most interesting conversation i'm sorry like there might have been people that played it better but just sitting around and having a conversation for an hour you're going with fucking fade on away (laughs) oh god and we can tie so much into the dynamics between all of the six degrees of separation between uh faye dunaway and former maria callis patty lapone That'll be so fun to go into. And the fact that she is playing famed opera singer Maria Callas months after Andrew Lloyd Webber fired her for saying she can't sing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, right. Because this would have come right... Oh, Immediately after that. Like the first thing she did after that. You say I can't sing, I'm going to play Maria Callas. And, and is still working on producing the... We will get into this next week. Already it, it the is, conversation starting. Oh, this is going to be a good one, listeners. It is not a musical, but God, is it going to be fun. And we hope that you still stick with us and listen to mm-hmm. it. Our first non-musical capture. I From what I have picked up of this thing, I so strongly recommend you uh, tune in and you watch along for next week's. In the meantime... Check out some masterclass clips on YouTube. And thank you for tuning in. And everybody go grab a new brain. Just just go get one. Just go drill a hole. That was something I forgot. That Yeah, just a hole drill. Creeped me the fuck out. Um, so just get a drill. Drill the top of your head off and just plop in a new brain. It's 2021. After the year we've had, I'm sure we could all use a new brain. brain. Good night, folks! (laughs) Good night. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Join us next week when we talk about the first national tour production of Masterclass uh, from 1996. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The New Brain and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute the recordings discussed herein. 